This is a Jewish TV channel presentation. Welcome to Talking Point, where controversial subjects are brought into sharp focus. Conversations with JTVC show host Laura Kessler comes up next. Welcome to Talking Point. I'm Laura Kessler. We often joke that for every two Jews, there are three opinions. But here are some actual statistics you may not have heard. According to World Population Review, for every one Jew on the planet, there are 131 Muslims, 163 Christians, 79 Hindus, 35 Buddhists, 29 folk religionists, four members of various other religions, and two or three Kanye West Twitter followers. Again, that's for every one Jew. In a world with nearly 8 billion people and 200 countries, yet only 14.5 million Jews and just one single country to run to in a crisis, Jews can't help but be aware of numbers. Consider that there are still 2 million fewer Jews today than there were even before the Holocaust began. Maybe that's why most of us were taught to value quality over quantity, brains over brawn, and diplomacy and negotiation over confrontation and aggression. But in the digital Wild West, and with an attention economy that rewards the metrics and algorithms, likes, views, and followers as indicators of success and influence, quantity often trumps quality out of basic necessity. Numbers matter more than ever, but some of us seem to have missed that memo. We may have won the 20th century war on Jews, but so far we're losing the 21st century culture war. While some of our greatest minds debate the merits of hard power versus soft power and lengthy 15-page diatribes, the next generation is learning to hate Israel and Jews one Instagram meme at a time. There comes a point when the numbers are simply stacked against you. Some say the courts have always been our best friend because they are the justice of last resort. However, courts need clearly defined laws to uphold with clear definitions if they are to be effective. And that involves a level of legalese that goes over the heads of the average Jew. Thankfully, my guest today is no average Jew. Fane Rosenbaum is a novelist, essayist, law professor, and distinguished university professor at Turo College. He's the author of Saving Free Speech from Itself and numerous other books of fiction and nonfiction. Fane is the legal analyst for CBS News Radio, a columnist for the Jewish Journal, and a contributor to the White Rose Magazine, to name but a few of his accolades. He writes frequently for major news publications and appears on cable news, covering topics about the conflict in the Middle East, global anti-Semitism, terrorism, human rights, moral justice, and Holocaust memory. Fane also hosts the talk show at the 92nd Street Y, and is the creative director of the Forum on Life, Culture, and Society. And we're so honored to have him with us today. Welcome, Fane. Thank you, Laura. It's so good to have you here. And I'm so excited to have you help us make the case for why we need IRA. So before we start, I wondered if you could begin by telling our listeners 
how your own Jewish identity was formed when you were young, and how it shaped the multifaceted career that you now have, which has made you one of the most dynamic voices of Jewish advocacy. Well, Laura, it's very kind of you to say, and I'm uh, very excited about this podcast and about the work you're doing to promote uh, all facets of of uh, Jewish both vulnerability and need, because there is an enormous you know change just in the last half dozen years in the way Jews are perceived uh, and the larger discourse about Jews, a coarsening of the culture uh, that has has um, made anti-Semitism appear to be more accessible and acceptable and even fashionable. And so we need what you're doing with the podcast and your uh, online television series is extremely important because they're just not enough uh, platforms uh, that will be available for this very kind of thing at the time that Jews and the world need it most. Uh, I'm an only child of Holocaust survivors. I was born in New York City. Um, and I, my parents really never spoke about their Holocaust experiences, but they died when I was young. And I think that experience of knowing that I was a child of survivors whose parents died when I was young left a lot of questions uh, that were open for me. And I started out trying to answer them as a novelist uh, because that allowed me to, you know, explore the, you know, the imaginary world. Um, But I was pulled in, not just as a law professor, but I was pulled in, I would say, after the second intifada, uh, very significantly, where I started to think, you know, in the in the 90s, I was, I was literary editor for Tikkun magazine, which is about as far left as you can go. So I always say I have very strong progressive bona fides. But sometime after the second intifada and after 9-11, it seemed to me that it no longer became a fair fight. And Jews were being... Uh, demonized, uh, Israel was being delegitimized, uh, a, a certain kind of casual acceptance uh, became the order of the day when it came to Palestinian violence, which somehow seemed to be justified. And Jewish self-defense was de- was considered unjustified. And you saw this in many ways, whether it was the various wars with Gaza, where you have, you know, asymmetric warfare, unlike any kind of warfare that we, the the humanity had ever experienced. And what we were really saying to Israel, you can't defend yourself in that kind of a situation. Um, And, you know, no other country would have been, you know, would have been given that kind of, of message that you simply cannot defend yourself. And so, again, you, you're seeing more examples of it, of Israel being deemed a colonialist enterprise, that Jews are the, white, the whitest of the white privileged, things that people would never have said or thought. It would be too ludicrous uh, years ago to think of Jews as being, you know, part of the uh, power center. Uh, you know, you're, the numbers that you gave at your opening are very stark and startling, right? To see the degree to which Jews are marginalized and a minority, but then simply not the way it is being uh, presented. And so I, as I say, I don't know if this is true of other Jewish advocates, but in my case, 
sometime after the 9-11 and the second intifada, it seemed to me that it was no longer a fair fight. It also seemed to me that the, that the kinds of people that I associated with as a writer, novelist, essayist, law professor, became very silent or became very radicalized against Israel. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, which was very troubling to watch because it looked like a career move, <laughs> you know, and it was. Uh, faculty members who are Jewish on campus, uh, most of them, I guess, keep their head down and say nothing, but far too many of them walk into the faculty lounge to proudly announce that Israel is the greatest uh, human rights violator in the history of humanity. And the Jews are basically terrible people. And then immediately they're given fruit cup and an invitation to a party. And they like that. Um, in my experiences working at various universities until I landed at Turo University, um, that's what it looked like. Jews scared out of their mind to stand up for Jews and to stand up for Israel. And worse Why than is that, complicit, complicity in attacks against Israel and a kind of shaming of Jews. I don't know. I think that Jews have always historically liked to sit at the cool pool table at the lunchroom. You know, they want acceptance. You know, Jews assimilated into the American mainstream more successfully than anyone else. Uh, you know, in, in every category of American culture, you will find, you know, Jewish influences. Uh, you know, God Bless America was written by a Jew. <laughs> White Christmas was written by a Jew. Right. Easter Parade mm-hmm. was written by a Jew. Um, you know, Western fashion was designed by, you know, Ralph Lauren, whose last, whose name is really Ralph Lipschitz. Um, you know, that means the, the preppy look and the Western look was Jewish <laughs> in, in origin. Hollywood. I didn't itself, realize Ralph Lauren was Jewish. Wow. Yeah, his, his last name. He was. He went to a Jewish day school, and he his last name was Lipschitz. Among all the Jewish fashion designers, I think he's the most Jewish, which is ironic, because he's so widely identified with the preppy look and the Western look. But as far right. as I know, he's the only one that was raised in a Jewish day school. Uh, and I think he went mm-hmm. to some uh, Torah or Talmud Academy for high school. Um, and so you see this, you know, the Hollywood studio moguls of the original seven or eight Hollywood studio chiefs, five were Jews. Um, mm-hmm. And guess what they and guess what they became famous for producing? Well, cowboy westerns. They, none of these guys right. had ever been on a horse. <laughs> They'd never been on a horse. Uh, but and they yet, decided. And yet there's so much about yeah. There's so much about Jew washing and you know people complaining that Jews run Hollywood, but we certainly don't feature Jewish ethnic characters. Um, yeah. And there, there's a lot of complaints about that. Yeah, I mean Jews. <laughs> when it comes to the new ethos of diversity, equity, and inclusion, Jews are not part of that discussion. And Jews who have the the ability to introduce more Jews into the diversity discussion choose not to. They're afraid to. So I just think that Jews have been so successful at assimilation. Uh, you know, I mean, even Fiddler on the Roof, right? You know, when you think about 
you know, it's it's central message. It's not an uncommon message, Laura, anyway. It's true for other films about other ethnic groups, say, you know, My Big Fat Greek Wedding or Bend It Like Beckham. You know, they all do the same thing, which is at the end, you give up your traditions to be like us. All the movies end the same Mm -hmm. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got these traditions, and you can even sing about them in Act 1. But at the end of Act 2, <laughs> you're going to give up a lot of those. You're going to compromise with those traditions and be like us. And and yeah. guess what? You know, Jews wrote, you know, their, all the music, the lyrics in the book to, to, to Fiddler on the Roof were written by Jews. So that was a certain kind of ethos, uh, a marching orders that Jews seemed to be uh, uh, accepting throughout the 20th century in the various ways in which they contributed to American culture and that all had the same message in the end. Uh, you know, Phil uh, Roth's novels early on were about Jewish men, uh, you know, uh, desiring shiksa goddesses, blonde-haired women, right, uh, who are not Jews. Uh, a lot of the 20th century was dominated by Jewish culture and Jewish cultural figures, you could even call them elites, who really were not all that interested in Jewish continuity at all. They were interested in being full-blooded, full-fledged Americans. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's many examples of this. In our, you know, Driving Miss Daisy, you know, has that really, you know, incredible scene that's historical about the bombing of the temple in Atlanta because the temple uh, was the leading reformed synagogue in Atlanta, and it had a, a week or two earlier invited Martin Luther King to speak on Shabbos. And so in return, the KKK bombed the temple. Um, and it is in Atlanta, that scene in, you know, where they're driving up to the synagogue and it's raining and there's police barricades and she sends the chauffeur out to find out what happened and he comes back and he says Miss Daisy they 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 bombed the temple and her response is Coke but we're reformed which is really a an incredibly great line uh, you know as you know, I completely thinking, missed that yeah I, I yeah know, I, it's that, I missed yeah that, most man. people so do it, it's, yeah well it's it is a it's an important most I thought it's the most important line in the whole movie because it says a lot about the Jews of Atlanta, what they thought, uh, that they were Southerners. They had Southern accents. Mm-hmm. They were part of the Southern culture. Uh, they didn't push their Judaism in front of anyone. They didn't eat, you know, bagels, lots, and cream cheese. You know, they, they didn't do anything that you did in Brooklyn. Uh, they even had cotillions called the last days of Ballyhoo, which was the coming out for, you know, Jewish girls uh, called The Last Days of Valley. By the way, it was interesting. The same playwright who wrote uh, Driving Miss Daisy, a Jew from Atlanta, also wrote a play called The Last Days of Valley. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you know, she, he, he got this concept, right? So I don't know. I think that it's a, it's a very complicated question that you've asked. But I think at, at, at its core is this obsession with assimilation and acceptance and the willing to sacrifice and compromise 
you know, Jewish faithfulness, fidelity, continuity, loyalty uh, in, rich, in exchange for this bargain, which is, you know, I'm an American. I want to be an American. You know, uh, uh, you know, Saul Bellows, you know, one of his best novels, The Adventures of Augie Marsh. Uh, begins with, you know, I'm, I forgot what he says, something, I'm a Chicago, I'm from Chicago, American born, uh, part of the American something experience. The opening line of Saul Bellows' novel starts that way, that the character Augie Marsh tells us, he announces who he is. He doesn't say I'm a Jew from Chicago. <laughs> he says I'm an American. So this is very common in American culture, and success for many American Jews in their mind depended on them blending in and not advocating for Jews. And I'll end with just this last anecdote, which is uh, more than half of the Jews, I'm sorry, more than half of the white people who participated in the civil rights movement, whether it's Freedom Summer or other years in which white people, white northerners, uh, went to the South to register African-Americans to vote uh, or helped in other ways, uh, financial ways or any other ways uh, in even urban settings, not just in the South, more than half were Jews. That's an incredible statistic, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What does that tell you? It tells you a number of things. One thing that tells you Jews are perfectly happy to organize for social for social uh, and racial equality. You know, they showed up in ways that other white people didn't. Um, you know, exactly. it's not like they don't, it's not like they don't want to get involved. It's not like they weren't willing to get their heads clubbed in by Southern rednecks. They did get their heads clubbed in by Southern rednecks. The three civil rights workers who were killed in uh, the Neshoba County, I think, in, in Mississippi, they were drowned. They were killed by the Klan, and you know, the, their car was pushed into a lake, into the Neshoba River, actually. Uh, three civil rights workers, two were Jews. One was African-American. Um, so, you know... Well, you raise the, the identity piece is so important because, I mean, this is really where... American Jewry is really conflicted and we're not all on the same page. Um, and, and maybe that's not all our fault because of the trauma of, of being in exile for so many years, but it certainly makes coming together with one unified voice to fight anti-Semitism uh, significantly harder. Um, and, and you brought forth something interesting that I really haven't thought a lot about. I've, plenty of people talk about Jews, especially academics, academics on campus and professors being afraid to speak out. But you brought forth the idea that it's, it's not just that they're afraid to speak out, it's that it's prestigious to sort of throw your own people under the bus. And that's just very disturbing. That's very, very upsetting to hear. I have said for years, <laughs> it's better to be Peter Beiner than Thane Rosenbaum. It's better to be Michael Shabon than Thane Rosenbaum. It's just better. It's better. I, I, you know, I, I, <laughs> my career as a novelist and as a as a law professor and as a you know public intellectual would would be much larger if I simply 
bashed Israel <laughs> and told the world how horrible Jews are. There's a moral narcissism attached to that. I just wasn't raised like that. When you ask me why is this, I, I wrote that in one of my essays. The moral narcissism is to say, you know, I'm a Jew. I planted trees in Israel. I spent some time on a kibbutz. But Israel is such a horrible country, I can't love it anymore. So I need to make an announcement to the world that I hate Israel because they are horrible people. I'm ashamed of them. And look at me. Look at how virtuous I am as a Jew, that I am, I am bashing the homeland, the ancestral homeland of my people and my people. So some of it is narcissism. Um, and some of it is a career move. <laughs> Uh, and some of it is fear. All, all three of those things are, are, are active in the same context. At universities, in mainstream media, in publishing, in uh, museums, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And, and, and in Jewish studies departments itself. You know, sometimes they are the, the, some of the worst, actually. That not speaking out like what happened at Michigan this weekend. I mean, there's a lot going on in the news just in the last couple of days here. Um, you know, many, many people that have not always spoken out are really speaking out about what happened at University of Michigan, where uh, the Students for Justice in Palestine are saying intifada, one solution. I mean, this is Hitler's language. And there's, as of this time, there's nobody at U of M uh, speaking out, not a single uh, person from Jewish studies that I'm aware of. So no, there, that, and there, and there won't be. There won't be. Well, first of all, uh, if you're not, if you're on a tenure track, forget getting tenure. If you defend Israel or defend Jews, if you call attention to the moral failings of Palestinians or, for that matter, African Americans, you're done. It's finished. If you just call attention to it. Like, for instance, if you say, I think, you know, police shootings are horrendous and what happened in Memphis is despicable and appalling. But if you also said something about, but in the end, we realize that the greatest amount of violence against African-Americans are committed by African-Americans, black on black crime. You're done. What I just said, you're done. Mm -hmm. That is mm -hmm. just data. That is what it is. You may not, we may not like the implication. If you were to say, you know, so much of, of the impoverishment and, and, and uh, 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 crime that's committed in uh, urban areas of, uh, of in African-American neighborhoods is related to the lack of a two-parent household. You're done. You're mm -hmm. done. It's, it's over. Now, if you say, well, actually, two-parent households actually do much better uh, certainly for African-Americans, but for everyone. Family structures make things better, put people on the right track, pro provide a sense of discipline, a sense of expectation. It's just obvious. It's just obvious. Discipline, expectation, you know, sense of family pride, all of that. But if you just said what I just said, you're, you're a racist. So nobody on a campus can speak honestly about certain subjects, especially now in the cancellation culture. So, you know, I, I just think Jews, I think, are especially bad at this. 
Part of it is their history of wanting to assimilate and like and want to be liked and sit at the cool, popular table. And part of it is mercenary. They just know it's a better career move. And some of them just believe it, you know? I mean, I, I don't want to discount that, too. They just believe it. You know, they believe that Israel's a terrible place. They believe that Jews are terrible people. They believe it. Well, and in your in your latest book about saving free speech from itself, you talk a lot about that phenomenon, and I think that that's a big part of the IRA definition that we're talking about because people complain on one hand about not having free speech, um, and on the other hand, they're restricting it in a lot of ways. And I'm curious what you think about the current state of Jewish civil rights with regards to free speech. Before we dive deep into IRA in just a moment. Um, there are a lot of Jews that, uh, on social media particularly, who feel that they are shadow banned or, or literally banned uh, just for promoting basic things that are, are pro-Israel, pro-Zionist. Um, what have you seen in that regard? Well, I can only speak from my own social media experiences. I mean, not, not, a, I, <laughs> not a day goes by that I'm not called a racist. I haven't been to many universities where when I walked in, I remember when I spoke at Berkeley, they were handing out flyers as I was walking into the auditorium and I took one and it said, Thane Rosenbaum believes in killing Palestinian children. You know, I mean, this is a, you know, people point to some op-ed that I wrote in the Wall Street Journal during the Gaza War 2014. None of the people have actually ever read the essay. It's a, you can read it. It's just that there's a paywall, so people never actually read it. They just decided. They just decided that they heard online that Dane Rosenbaum wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in 2014, uh, justifying the killing of Palestinian children. There's not one word in that 825-word essay that says that. It says the exact opposite. Right. But in the in the era of social media, it doesn't matter. I'm sure it's, I, right. I don't care because I don't look at stuff like that, but I'm sure it's on my Wikipedia page. If anyone's listening to this, I would simply say, you really should just, you know, go get the essay. It's not that hard to get, get the essay, read it, and see if what's been said about it is in any way uh, uh, presented in the, in, the, in the language. So, you know, it's very easy to demonize. It's easy to, you know, you know there's, you know, essentially, mob, you know, social media mobs, the crowdsourcing of hate, uh, of 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 de of of you know delegitimization. It's very easy to do on a Twitter account. You know, you just get bombed, bombarded by it. Um, no, it's some you know, some people have been through. It's just horrific. The cancel culture and it, it's scary. It's very scary, and I, I really think our, our kids are the heroes. Um, they're, they're really on the front line, you know, for sure, which is um, which is a big reason why we're we're launching the We Need Ira campaign. Um, and so, you know, as you know, the Jewish TV channel is launching a dedicated space to unify the efforts to fight anti-Semitism. It's called Act Fast, which stands for Fight Anti-Semitism Together. And the We Need IRA campaign will be launched in a few weeks with bipartisan action against anti-Semitism. 
And we've asked you today to help us make the legal case for IRA to the mainstream public. You know, our audience is international from many different countries, multiple faiths. Um, so, you know, can we start out with what is IRA in the first place? And why is it so important for the protection of the Jewish people at this critical moment? So, Laura, one thing to think about when we think of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, because that's what this is. It's it, when you say make the legal case, it's even it's a deeper issue than even that, because it goes straight to the core of my last book, Saving Free Speech from Itself, because it involves free speech and it also involves academic freedom. So it involves a number of things that most people really don't understand. So it's interesting. It's almost, a, you know, IRA is almost the civics lesson on both free speech and academic freedom. Um, and if that's why it's so important and exactly why there's going to be such hesitation about it. Uh, in 2016, 33 countries, I think, there's since I think it's up to 40 now, adopted a new definition of anti-Semitism because they saw that throughout Europe there was a shocking amount of ignorance about Holocaust education. And I think uh, several of these are essentially representatives, political leaders of 33 countries. I think they were led by either the premier of Switzerland or Sweden, I think it was Switzerland, who brought everyone together into this alliance. So when we talk about IRA, it's the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. And that's an important, right, it's an important phrase, right? It's an alliance of these nations to agree on anti what, what is the definition of anti-Semitism? Now, why is that important? What does that have to do with the Holocaust? Why would these nations that purportedly were interested in simply educating Europeans, younger generations of young Europeans to the Holocaust, which of course took place in Europe, why is the definition important? Why is it important on university campuses? Why is it important in corporations? Uh, well, because what I would call classic historic uh, anti-Semitism, you know, is based on the concept of Jews as Christ killers and Jews as matzo makers, essentially. <laughs> you know, why do we hate Jews? Well, because they killed Christ. Why do we hate Jews? Because they can't make matzah without killing little Christian children and using their blood to make matzah. As if matzah, which is the worst tasting food on the planet, could be made worse <laughs> with blood. As if Jews actually thought that would be the key ingredient. Now, again, again somebody, this, people believe this. So, yes, people believe this. And that's why this is important because, you know, for centuries, people who are complete imbeciles, illiterate, worked off of that model to hate Jews. Those are the reasons they hate Jews. The problem is in a university. Began, yeah. So that's why I began with those statistics because statistically it's hard to meet a Jew. You know, so, so people yeah. are going by folklore. You know, I, I, I've been many people's first Jew, so I've been told, in the Midwest. And I mean, you know, if all you've heard is crazy, you know, almost vampire stories, 
it, 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 it's a little hard. It's a tough act to follow. So, but see, you can see how that won't work on a campus because as stupid as many undergraduates are, and as uh, as intellectually dishonest are as many faculty members are. They're not going to be able to sell the idea of Christ killing and masa makers. That's not, it's not going to work on a college campus. So a, a proxy needed to be created, a, 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 a something else other than killing Christ and, and making matzah. And Israel is a gift to Jew haters. It's a gift. Um, all of a sudden, you have a country who doesn't belong there. The Jews have no ancestral connection to the Holy Land. No matter what it says in the Old Testament, Jews have come from Brooklyn and Brentwood and Skokie and went and stole the land of brown people, of brown-skinned people. White guys went and stole, they stole the land of brown-skinned people. That's what it means to be a colonialist. And there is no greater, even more so in some ways than racist on campus, than to be called a colonialist, which is why Israel on campus is called a settler colonialist enterprise. That's a fancy term. What, what does it mean? It means white guys stole the land of brown guys. That's what it means. And we know that in the new in the new woke era, there's nothing worse that you can be called. So Israel is a great pinata, a punching bag. Find the things, the worst things you could say. Settler colonialist enterprise, apartheid state, ethnic cleanser. Wow. You know, right. talk about you know defamation. Those things, those terms. That, that wordplay mean a lot on a campus. Matzah making does not. And so if you right. want to turn ignorant kids, you know, against Jews, turn them against their, their nation. That this is a nation that should not be a nation. Jews are not entitled. They're the only people that are not entitled to a nation. And they're certainly not entitled to a nation in which they stole the land of others. So that's why you hear the word colonialism. That's why you hear, you know, the language about uh, appropriation of, 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 of essentially trespassing on, on Arab land. Uh, you know, the efforts to say that there's no ancestral Jewish ancestral connection to Jerusalem or to Israel. You know, it's one of those things that I speak about around the country one of these, one of my favorite little, you know, anecdotes that just cause Jew haters to gnash their teeth is again, part of the problem is most Jews are ignorant about Jewish history and ignorant about Israel history. But, you know, Jerusalem is mentioned in the Old Testament 677 times. And cities, towns within the uh, Israel are mentioned all throughout the Old Testament. Right, and yet you're hearing that Jews have no connection to the Holy Land in Jerusalem, but it's actually mentioned in the Old Testament 677 times. So then I usually then say to the audience, Laura, I'm just curious, take a guess, 
How many times then is Jerusalem mentioned in the Quran? Let's go, book for book. Come on, buddy, book for book. You, we got it 677 times. You say Jerusalem belongs to Arabs and not to Jews. The Jews come from Brooklyn and Brentwood and Skokie and no connection at all to the, the, the Holy Land. Obviously, you must, your book must have, it's got to be twice, three times. Most people don't know Jerusalem is not mentioned once in the Quran. Not one time. How is that possible? How is it possible for you to walk, for people to walk around claiming this is ours and not theirs? When your holy book is talking about Mecca and Medina, for sure, Jews are making no claims on Mecca and Medina, but it's not mentioned one time. How did it manage to get left out? So again, these are all, you know, it works better if you're, if you're ignorant, if you don't know anything and you're a college freshman and you're being told that white people stole the land of brown people and the white people had no business being there. And, and, and this is, and this so is where this, I think the numbers are so important, you know, because I, I, the level of misinformation and we, the way we are constantly playing whack-a-mole with false narratives it's very difficult to see a winning path to that. And that's why right. I think the the legal path is something more of us need to talk about. Um, in one of your books, you quoted Woodrow Wilson, I believe, a hundred years ago, him saying that the way you change a country is through the unelected bodies, the courts, and the massive bureaucracy. And to me, that applies to IRA as well. I feel like IRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Association's definition of anti-Semitism, and there's many definitions. We can maybe talk about some of the other ones that are not so good. But IRA, to me, is the bridge from the 20th century anti-Semitism of the Holocaust to what some people call the, the new anti-Semitism of Israel phobia in the 21st century. Because as you said, they've just They've just sort of, you know, metastasized it as, okay, well, we can't do that old European type of anti-Semitism. So now, okay, they've got a country, we'll just demonize that. And so it's it's very challenging, when especially we haven't educated our, our, our kids as well as we could or blame it on whatever the, the assimilation, um, self-hatred, there's a lot of things we can analyze, but ultimately we're asking little kids to be on the front line of the next looming hatred. And I, I think it's just, it's, it's too much, although there are some really heroic kids out there, but I think we need to, to speak more seriously about what, what legal remedies we have. And it troubles me, Shane, because a lot of people are for IRA, but like lukewarm, you know, <laughs> it's not sexy. It, it's not, they're like, well, yeah, I think it's good, but it's just, I don't think it's the most important thing or I'm a little uncomfortable with the, the I, I think it might trample a little bit on free speech. And there are really educated people that are on the side of, of Israel and, and, you know, fighting anti-Semitism, they're not so into it. So what, 
what can we say to uh, uh, assuage that? Because it's it's very troubling to me that we're not all screaming this, you know, in one voice with our hair on fire. To me, Ira is is you know, am I wrong? Is it not the the big solution here? But like, it is in a way. It's credit. interesting. That, no, in fact, what you said before is interesting about people who hesitate about Ira because they say that it it impinges on free speech. It's ironic when they say that they don't realize that free speech when it comes to the Middle East has already been impinged on campus because of hate crimes, mm-hmm. hate codes, uh, campus language, you know, the, 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 the censorship of language. So in order to protect the feelings of Palestinians, to make sure that they don't get triggered with, with trigger warnings, in order to provide them with safe spaces on campus, you can't talk about Israel favorably. You can't, in Berkeley just passed a leg, uh, uh, student resolution to ban any pro-Israel speakers or any speaker who doesn't come to campus who is even speaking about Israel. Speaking, like for instance, if I went to Ber- I've spoken at Berkeley several times, but under the new law that they have, student code, even if I went as a novelist, and read from a novel that doesn't mention Israel at all, because I'm a Zionist, I would be forbidden from being at, on that campus. That See, is, and that's that, really outrageous. It, but that's, that's what that, that's how, so you can see how much censorship and, and cancellation works, is to be, even if you, are, if you are a Zionist, even if you're not there to speak about Israel, we, we, why do we do this? Because it harms the Palestinians. It harms brown-skinned people who come from the Middle East. They're harmed, and we need to provide them with safe spaces. So where's the free speech in that? So if you're really saying that IRA is a restriction on free speech, then explain to me what's, why can't Thane Rosenbaum be invited to Berkeley even to read from his novels, right? So if you really believe in free speech, you, then you can't accept that. You either believe in free speech or you don't believe in free speech. But in the, the yeah. protocols of the woke universe, the biggest, the, the, the thing that's most important is to, pr- to protect people from being endangered by words or things that could trigger in them something. Why we, this is why we ban books, why we, you know, professors are afraid to lecture to students because they know they're being recorded and they'll know there's so many administrators that are enforcing woke rules that they might have a letter sent to their file that they said the wrong word, they said the wrong thing. So anybody on campus that says they're against IRA because of free speech grounds is a hypocrite because they know there's no free speech on campus. There's there's certainly not when it comes to Israel. The, 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 The concept of woke intersectional environments to protect people, Muslims, from the harm that comes from them just by hearing the words Israel spoken favorably. That is, there's no free speech on campus when it comes to that, right? So again, I think that anyone that's making that argument against IRA is intellectually dishonest because what they're really saying is, I kind of like free speech when it comes to bashing Israel. There, I have my academic freedom 
to bash Israel and to bash any Jew that supports Israel or any Jew that doesn't denounce Israel. I mean, people don't realize how bad it is on campus. There were student government leaders at UCLA and at the University of Southern California that either were forced to resign or resigned or were subjected to um, flash mobs of social media against them because they refused to denounce Israel because they had in early time, they acknowledged at some point they visited Israel. Are you hearing this? The fact that a Jew went to Israel makes them disqualified from being the president of the student government. Why? Because by being Jewish and going to Israel, you harm the Muslim students. What? Really? Yeah, that's what's being said. On it's campus. insanity. It's insanity. It that, is, that's, that's essentially like saying if an Irish American in Chicago takes pride in yes. Ireland on St. Patrick's Day and they dye the Chicago River green, which they actually do, um, that somehow there's a dual loyalty to Ireland, and it's it's not based on Catholicism. It's no, no, it's much worse than a dual loyalty, know? Laura. It's much worse than dual right. loyalty. It's much. It is harm producing to a segment of the population. To display pride in Irishness and their connection to an ancestral homeland, Ireland, a, a segment of the American people will be harmed by that. That's what they're saying. It's preposterous. That's like asking Italians to to break up with Italy and and disavow Italian food. It's it's so absolutely ludicrous. And I want to make clear to our listeners that the IRA definition, what's special about it is it acknowledges that hatred and demonization and delegitimization of Israel is specifically being used uh, as a vehicle. And it's, it, you know, the claim is that it's legitimate criticism of Palestinian civil rights. Um, and no one is trying to silence voices in, in that particular debate. The problem is that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Thane, but the problem is that it goes further. You know, when they say, kill the Jews, kill the Zionists, as if it's one word, interchangeable, and then we start getting violence. It goes further. And, you know, when something's happening in Israel and uh, people in America are getting beat up sitting at restaurants and they walk up and say, excuse me, are you Jewish? Bam. You know, um, I mean, there, there's, it's been conflated. And well, only IRA includes that. Am I correct? Well, yeah. Well, we haven't gotten to the key point. So now might be the the perfect opportunity. Uh, the definition of anti-Semitism that is that was created by these 33 nations called the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance has some of the old tropes of anti-Semitism. Jewish control, Jewish, Jewish conspiracy, you know, the Kanye West nonsense, right? Um, some of that is there. But the, the key provisions have to do with Israel. And that is what people can't stand. That's what their problem is with IRA. What does it have to do with Israel? Well, denying Jews the right to self-determination, to live in their own state. That's anti-Semitism. Until now, until the adoption, until the creation 
of this new definition of anti-Semitism. To say that Jews have no right to a country is just a political opinion, and I have the right to say that. No, not according to the IRA definition. If you are saying, if you are singling Jews out as the only people on the war in the world that are not entitled to self-determination in their ancestral homeland, then you're a Jew hater. Stop, stop pretending that you're just taking a political position. You're an anti-Semite. That's what IRA says. Stop saying that. I know that we've given you a path. This is your, an acceptable way to hate Jews, to say that Jews have no right to self-determination. But what Ira is saying, no, 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 no. You call what you claim as a political opinion is also an, an, uh, uh, an act of extreme anti-Semitism, categorical anti-Semitism. To mm-hmm. say that Israel is a racist, colonialist society and that that is comparable to the Nazis under the IRA definition is anti-Semitism. Calling Israel a racist state, colonialist state, and the comparison to the Nazis under the definition, you're a Jew hater. Now, you can imagine mm-hmm. why this is so... In- unimaginable on a campus. People have been living off of this. They've been, their careers have been based on the fact that they go into class and they call Zionists racists. They call Israel Nazis. Right? They, they've been living, they feed off of this. They love it. They grit their teeth. You know, they flame their nostrils when they say this in a classroom. Well, the problem is that under this definition, if it were to be adopted, implemented, which the Biden administration hasn't done, but to, to Donald Trump's credit during his administration, the uh, Department of Education applied the definition strictly for Title VI purposes, meaning to guarantee that Jews, Jewish students would be receiving civil rights on campus because Jews are not just an ethnicity, they are a people and a nation. And so in order to prove that, to say Title VI is not just about uh, racial bias and sexual bias, it's also about national and peoplehood bias. And Jews identify themselves as connecting, it's not about dual loyalty, it's that yes, we're American citizens, but we are also a people, and our people come from Israel. And we, we have a right to believe in the self-determination of the Jewish people. And if you're singling out our homeland among all the other homelands and saying that our homeland is illegitimate, our homeland is racist, our homeland are Nazis, you're a Jew hater. And why is this important? Well, because if you take the definition, apply it to Title VI, why is that important? Because you're not allowed, you, you can't receive federal funding. Title VI specifically says you cannot receive federal funding if as an educational institution you are discriminating against these categories of people, race on the basis of sex and nationality and religion. And Jews, for the first time, were able to point to Title VI and say, if you're on campus saying 
that Israel's racist and Israelis are Nazis and Jews are not allowed to have a country. And the point that you made is also in IRA, which is very important, which is policies that take place in Israel are being blamed on American Jews. Jews that, by the way, may never have been to Israel. People will say, well, yeah, I beat the shit out of that Jewish guy, but I did because of something that happened in Israel. And I had to just beat the shit out of the Jewish person. That's what I really want to do. And it's the way I express myself. Because it's just me. I like to express myself. That's how I express my political views, by beating the crap out of somebody. That, that is not just, it's not just an aggravated hate crime, right? It's wor- it's, it is also an act of anti-Semitism. So you start well, and to many see people things. don't even realize. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, so it was being implemented in interesting ways, like uh, Duke University and the University of North Carolina jointly put together a conference on the Middle East in which they invited no one that was supporting Israel. And every single speaker called Israel a genocidal nation, a racist nation, every single one to standing ovation. These are purportedly academics. These are clowns with PhDs. Yeah, they're PhDs, but they're clowns. And everything, and these are two major universities, Duke and University of North Carolina. I mean, how embarrassing this is. This happened at many, yeah. Yeah, but this is at a joint, yes. Yeah, but but I'm saying what happened there is the Department of Education brought a civil rights complaint against both universities, you know, to say, we're going to strip you of your federal funding. You think this is funny? You think this is a joke? You put a few clown professors, let them, you know, use your facilities to present this one-sided interpretation of the Middle East, and you think we're going to give you federal funds? Not just for that program, for every program. You're not getting anything. Clean up your act. And that's something that is just not happening on campuses. No one is speaking honestly to university university presidents Clean up your school. You've got a lot of Jew hate, hatred here, and clean it up. And you're not going to get any federal funding, whether you're a federal university, a, a state, a, a government-funded university or not. Most private universities receive federal funding, too. So that's why you notice it, the, the civil rights complaint was against Duke, which is a private university, and University of North Carolina, which is a state-run university. Both were equally in violation of Title VI. Why? Because of IRA, right? Because of the idea that these definitions, is the definition of anti-Semitism is no longer about Christ-killing and matzo-making. It includes these other elements. And punishing kids on campus, you know, there was a, there's, I mean, there's so many, there's hundreds and hundreds of stories on, about what happened on campus. But the one that to me all still sticks out happened at University of Pennsylvania on orientation week during that time when all the student organizations uh, set up a booth outside and all the freshmen get to walk and visit all of them to decide what they want to join. And the Students for Justice in Palestine had their booth. And there was a, a, a boy with a yarmulke who came from a Jewish day school who walked up to the SJP and he said, you know, I went 
to a Jewish day school and was very sheltered on questions dealing with the Middle East, other than, you know, I support Israel. But I really don't understand it as much as I'd like to. You know, is there anything that I could read? Is there anything that, you know, I could do that might help me understand it? One of the boys got up and punched the Jewish boy in the face. Just knocked him out. Free speech, right? That a, a, a Jewish boy sincerely said, look, I'm really not. He was wearing a yarmulke. That was enough for the boy from the students, that student for Justin's house. He's a yarmulke. He's got a Jew. He's a Jew. And he dared to speak to me. I'm going to punch his lights out. So right. that and this is, is where we blaming. can try diplomacy, but we may need the courts. You know, the, the yeah, diplomacy well, is not working. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not. I'm not advocating, you know, violence. Of course not. But I'm. I, I'm saying that I think that when you look at a problem, and you say, well, what is the one thing that would help the most other things? To me, that's Ira, and it's it's not perfect. It's definitely not perfect. Um, so you know, I know some people even say, not only is it not perfect, but it opened a Pandora's box, and now because of it, we've got the Jerusalem definition and all these other not so great definitions that, you know, have everything but the Israel part, which is the key part. Um, and I'd love you to weigh in on that. But to me, the, the, the conclusion continually is that we need Ira. The kids need Ira. And um, I think, I think Ira um, is perfect. Actually, I think it's perfect. Okay. I, uh, I, I, you know, I mean, I speaking it, what I just said before, it opens up the conversation to be much more honest about what people are saying. Now, people are saying, you're, you're preventing me from uh, challenging Israel policies. No, we're not. No, Ira doesn't do that. You know, Jews are very right. good at challenging Israeli policies. What you're seeing now with the, uh, uh, the power of the Israeli Supreme Court is being uh, neutralized, being diminished. American Jews, global Jews, Israelis are complaining about that. Jews have no problem complaining about things. You can complain about policies, but that's not what the Students for Justice in Palestine are saying. They're saying eliminate Israel. That means that Jews are not allowed to have the self self determination of their own country. That's Jewish that's Students for Justice in Palestine. Right. Well, right. singing the song you know, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, right? That's a genocidal song. And if you're going to sing that song, or if you're going to sing Intifada, Intifada, the final is only one solution, that's not questioning Israel's policies. That is violating IRA. It's violating this new definition of anti-Semitism. So when people say, Oh, I, you know, it's very dangerous, this new, this new definition of anti-Semitism, because it leads to a censorship of free speech. No, it doesn't. It really doesn't at all. If you have any problem with Israeli policies, the problem is that most Islamists and most Palestinians have a problem not with Israeli policies. They have a problem with Israel, period. It's existence. They don't believe it belongs there. They believe it all was stolen from them. And that's why they have rejected five offers for statehood. That's why they, they, UNRWA, their own United Nations Relief Organization, 
will never be disbanded. That's why Palestinians, unlike any other refugee category in the world, can be perpetual refugees, but every other people in the world can only be refugees for one generation only. And at that point, they have to be folded into another country. There's only one special people. I don't know what makes them so special, but there's only one people that are special in the world. They're called the Palestinians who are not held to that same standard. And they can be refugees in perpetuity. Until what? Until I get all of Israel back and that olive tree. Not, not that olive tree, this olive tree. It can't be that olive tree. It's got to be this olive tree. That kind of petulance. Yeah. yeah, right, right. This, that kind of Palestinian petulance is what we've all been experiencing for decades. And a, a special treatment of one refugee group status over all the others. So, again, it's, don't let anybody confuse you by saying, you know, this definition is dangerous because it's a restriction on academic freedom. No, it's not. It's basically saying we're not going to let you uh, disguise your Jew hatred as a human rights issue on behalf of Palestinians. You've been pulling that off nicely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. And you you basically answered um, I have some audience questions that were pre-submitted, um, and you kind of you, you've answered some of them, you know, mostly. Uh, but uh, Joy Bernstein had asked. Many critics say Ira is designed to silence criticism of Israel and of Zionism by equating this criticism with anti-Semitism. And is Ira designed to silence pro-Palestinian voices? Um, how do you get to the specific of you know, where does the criticism cross over into not just criticizing the politics into, uh, you know, where it becomes anti-Semitism? Just, you know, just take an honest look at Israel. This is joy, right? The answer is take Mm -hmm. an honest look at Israel and go sit in on the session of the Knesset. 20% of the country is Arab. There are Arab parties in the Knesset. Parties are debating and arguing policies all the time. That kind of debate that is spirited in the Knesset can be had at universities, right? You can have those debates. You just can't have a debate that says Israel is illegitimate and should not exist. Haaretz is a newspaper so far progress on the progressive. There isn't a newspaper I would say you know, on the planet that is so hostile to the policies of its, of its government. There's no such, nothing's like Haaretz. Haaretz even in many, is almost anti-Israel. And that, that takes place in Israel every day. Every day Haaretz comes up with a new paper. And that's, that doesn't, none of that violates the definition of, of Ira. So again, the problem is that we're, we're, we're not being honest about what the criticism is, right? We're, we're not being honest and saying, you know what? Your criticism all has one thing in common, get rid of Israel. <laughs> right. That's your criticism. And that leads well. That's, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, that leads well into another question from uh, Beryl Dovlerner asks, many ultra-Orthodox Jews are anti-Zionists and deny Israel's right to exist. Are they anti-Semites? 
Yeah, you know, I love that because, you know, we know, I think they're called the Naturi Karta or something, certain branches of mm-hmm. uh, of the Hasidic sect. Uh, yes, uh, uh, under the definition of Ira, if Hasidim take the view that Jews don't have a right, now again, they have a theological argument. They don't, they're not making a political argument. So there's one distinction that's important. They're saying, there, there's, there's, Jews have a right to a Jewish homeland, but it has to be created by God, not by people. Uh, you know, Hashem needs to do it. So it's not quite violates the, because Ira is really a political uh, uh, definition. It's saying that politically, the world cannot come together and recognize the existence of a Jewish state. The Hasidim are saying something else. It's not about the world. The world has no right to give or not to give. No people have the right to do that. Jews or non-Jews, it has to be done by Hashem. They're not saying that Israel doesn't have a right to exist. They're just saying it's God's job. It's not yours job. So I would say to to your the person who asked that question, it depends on what they're saying. If they're saying mm-hmm. Jews don't have a right to a homeland, that violates IRA. If they're saying Jews have a right to a homeland, but not if unless but only if it's God given, that doesn't violate uh, UNRWA. Um, mm-hmm. And they do it. it it's it's really I'm sorry, in IRA. I'm sorry. Right. Right. Um, I mean, and it's religious based for them, but they still are used as, you know, glorified tokenists by a lot of anti-Semites. So um, it's really frustrating to see when that happens. Well, you know, uh, I just wrote an essay about Ken, Ken. Well, yeah, but it, there's much worse. You know, the 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 Hasidim to me are so a small problem in that regard. The real problems are people like Ken Roth who I wrote about recently for the Jewish Journal in my bi-monthly column. Whereas, you know, he spent 30 years as the executive director of Human Rights Watch, uh, purportedly a non-governmental organization uh, dedicated to human rights, but focused obsessively on Israel, the one democracy in the Middle East, not on Syria, the genocide in Syria or in Yemen, and violations against human rights, violations against women and homosexuals in all Muslim societies. He didn't, he didn't seem interested in that. Now, he is a Jew, and he likes to say that his father fled Nazi Germany. So, you know, the, the, to me, you know, your last questioner about the Hasidic Jews is, is, is unfortunately too small compared to the Ken Roths of the world. Those guys, mm-hmm. the people at, you know, as you said earlier, Jewish uh, studies professors in universities who are anti-Israel. They're Jews, but they're anti-Israel. To me, that's a much bigger problem than small sects within the Hasidic community that say Jewish homelands are fine as long as God creates them. Well, and this ties into the ongoing conversation we've had on this program about universalism versus particularism. And you know, a lot of people are like, huh, what does that mean? It's basically saying Jewish lives matter versus all lives mattering, which is what we tend to do to ourselves, while other other ethnicities are very good at saying, you know, our lives matter, uh, you know, black lives matter, Asian lives matter, 
and we're always saying, you know, let's start with everybody and we'll get around to ourselves eventually, if ever. Um, and, and so that's a big that's a big problem. With do you think well, that's we, where some of the criticism of Ira internally comes from? Just sort of not wanting to uh, yeah. stand up enough for ourselves. Yeah, it's that the we've talked you we, you and I talked about it earlier in your podcast, right? We, when I talked about mm-hmm. Jews being overly involved in the civil rights movement, it's not like they can't argue for civil rights. They just don't want to argue for their civil rights. <laughs> you know, Jews were probably in the front line of the Black Lives Matters protest. Right. Oh, but yeah. if a Jew, if a Jewish person was being beaten up, if a, a rabbi was being beaten up on the street, I don't know how many Jews would cross the street to help or to protest. When Hasidic Jews were being beaten up uh, during Hanukkah before the pandemic, so I guess that would have been December of 2019, uh, there was a killing in Muncie. There was uh, mm-hmm. violence in Jersey City. In where near where I live in Brooklyn and uh, in Williamsburg, Jews didn't seem all that interested in that. Hasidic Jews were being beaten up during this time. Then we saw six months later during that skirmish, Israel's sort of sort of a mini war with Hamas, Jews being beaten up in Los Angeles, Times Square, the Diamond District in New York City. Most Jews didn't get nearly as agitated about that as they did about Black Lives Matter. Jews just are just not going to do that. They're just not going to do it for themselves. Part of that, I think, has to do with this horrendous, horrendous, you know, two Hebrew words that is propagated throughout the Reformed Synagogue universe called tikkun olam. But like the worst thing that's happened to Jews, because it goes to the point that Tikkun Olam is understood by Jews as I express my Judaism, my Jewishness through social activism for other people, <laughs> not for us, for other people. That's how I prove that I'm a Jew. And well, it's like I a don't secular know, religion I, I, based upon, yeah, it's like based yeah. upon cobbler's syndrome, basically, for some people. Yeah. So they've come up with this, this new way to, it's, it's not about, you know, mitzvot for in other ways. It's not about studying the Talmud or the Torah. It's not about, you know, uh, obeying the 613 commandments. It's about showing up as a social activist on behalf of other people. And so, again, it's not like Jews don't know how to rally. They just don't, they won't rally for each other. You know, as we said from the beginning, uh, you know, that this is a common thread on university campuses and in in corporations and mainstream media. Um, You know, Jews don't count. Now, the issue about particularity versus universality, you know, this is, this is, this is, again, as I said before, this is like a historic Jewish problem. This happened with the diary of Anne Frank. I mean, I'm one of the, you know, I'm one of the people that have written critically about the diary, the way it was published. Uh, Otto Frank, this is not that well known, but Otto Frank discovered his daughter's diary uh, hidden in the attic, and he decided to publish it. But he edited it. He censored it. He censored his daughter. And he changed the story into one that was more universal. And, of course, the movie version did it even worse to say, 
you know, we don't have to discuss that she's a Jew. We don't have to say, well, you know, what we, what we want to focus on is she lived in Amsterdam, she worshipped the Queen of England, and she liked Christmas trees. That's Anne Frank. And, and in the end, as she says, in the, in, despite everything that I've experienced, in the end, I think people are really good. Now, if you read the actual diary, the unredacted diary, yeah, that sentence is in there, but it's surrounded by resentment, hatred of her experience of being persecuted as a Jew. Her father took it out. He didn't want his daughter to sound angry. He wanted to sell more books. I know that sounds terrible. I'm happy to defend, happy to defame Otto Frank. I thought, I thought what he did was despicable, utterly despicable. And I'm sure his daughter was rolling over in her grave. Yes, she became wow. the most famous 13-year-old in the history of 13-year-olds. But he also lied to the public in order to create a universal message rather than a particular message. And this, there's been, there was, there was a, you know, there was a controversy about this. There, I know I was one of the people that have wrote, written about it, but long before I was writing about it, there was, I forgot his name, the Jewish novelist, it'll come to me in a second, uh, who originally was, he was the one who reviewed the diary for the New York Times book review, and he originally had a contract to write the screenplay for the movie. And eventually, Otto Frank decided to not let Jews write the screenplay. And the entire movie was made by non-Jews, by Christians. And the film version, you know, the, the message is a universal message. It's not a particular message. So the description of what you said before is old story. I, to me, the best anecdote is the Anne Frank anecdote. Because mm -hmm. there was all sorts of stuff. For instance, he took out stuff that she said about her mother. Anne Frank was probably not unlike other teenagers who had problems with her mother and it was in her diary. Mm -hmm. Check it out. So that's not in there. And her feelings yeah, about really her really begs the question. Go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I mean, it, it, it begs the question that to, to fix the, the issue of anti-Semitism, is it mostly things we have to ask Gentiles to do or is it things we have to ask ourselves to do? Um, you know, it, it, it's uh, what can we do better, I think, has to be part of it. And I don't mean, you know, self, self-flagellation like some people like to do, but more self-advocacy in a lot of ways. Um, Making and it, public it demand. A, well, you know, and the, the apathy towards IRA, even among pro-Israel people, just really troubles me. I know, I know a lot of Israelis are not that into it because, in general, they're divorcing themselves from pretty much everything having to do with the UN, and it's it's they they consider it somehow part of that as far as you know the discussion up at the moment. But um, you know, it just seems like it's an especially tough sell when to me it's quite logical that it's the pathway and the vehicle to enforcing Title VI, which, as you mentioned, is what a lot of people consider what what really makes a difference and moves moves the needle. And I, I wanted to ask you. Um, how has Title VI changed under the Biden in administration? I know a lot of people are very disappointed that uh, Biden, uh, well, the Biden administration, they pretty much delayed their judgment over IRA for yet another year. And can you discuss the implications about that as well? So the Trump administration passed, a, I guess, an executive action 
called, I forgot what it was ultimately called, uh, but it was sort of an anti-Semitism uh, remedy, uh, something, in, you know, uh, calling for essentially, you know, and again, I, I don't remember exactly what the executive order was, um, but the idea was to implement, to do two things, to understand that in the general categories of, of the Civil Rights Act, and Title VI in particular, which deals with federal funding, that nationality refers to Jews and their connection to Israel. That Jews are not just a religion, they're also a people. And there are people that have an, a historic connection to Israel. And that was how the Trump administration decided to interpret the anti-discrimination provisions of Title VI and the Civil Rights Act. By the way, state governments also have anti-discrimination provisions. So the idea would be if everyone adopted and implemented IRA, it would apply in states as well, uh, states and the federal government. Title VI only deals with federal funding uh, from the federal government under the Civil Rights Act. But you can imagine in a, if it, in a perfect world, where everyone recognized that this is the definition of anti-Semitism. Again, it's not about matzah makers um, uh, or Christ killers or even, you know, manip you know, scheming Jews, manipulating Jews, uh, having ex uh, uh, exercising disproportionate control over and power over certain industries. It's not just that. It also has to do with Israel that you can't slip your anti-Semitism into a neat claim for either free speech or academic freedom to say that Israel should not exist and that Jews who live anywhere in the world are to, are to blame for policies or actions undertaken by uh, the Israeli government. Now, the, the, the idea was to turn that executive action uh, the, to which the name of which I can't remember what it was called, um, but to turn that and make it federalize it and to codify it so that it would simply it would simply apply to all federal agencies, not just the Department of Education, but all federal agencies. By the way, the United States State Department has already adopted IRA. So it's not like it's not already, it's already there. The state, and by the way, the State Department has historic problems with anti-Semitism. The State Department has historic problems with Israel. So the fact that the State Department adopted it is to me extraordinary, really extraordinary. So what people are disappointed is that President Biden had promised by December of 2022, the month that just passed, that that executive action would be codified and implemented and applied throughout all federal agencies. And he delayed. Immediately, the members of the squad sent out tweets thanking him. Just to show you how important IRA is, it's because what it does, it, it takes a weapon away, the weaponization of the Israel as a way to attack and harm Jews. How do you attack Jews? Attack them through Israel justify your attacking Jews because of what Israel's policies done. It's a, this was a, um, a, as I said, a gift. Israel is a gift to anti-Semites. 
because they no longer have to say they killed Christ. They can say instead they killed some Palestinian, they won't say terrorists, but they killed some Palestinian terrorists in Janin, and so therefore we have the right to attack them. And this is in, where I think in, a in, lot in of Los our Angeles. own community, yeah. <laughs> in, yeah, in yeah. And I mean, this is where I, I guess I'm baffled with some of our own community for, you know, it, it's like we're not comfortable being strong. It's like we have IRA. It's getting popular. It's being adopted. And, you know, it's like, well, it's like, are we only comfortable being victims where we're not comfortable uh, being stronger, then that's just, this is a mindset problem. Like, is there a generation that's like the, the 40 years in the desert with Moses that just has to get over themselves? I mean, it's it's just, I, we're, we need to be comfortable being strong, standing up for ourselves, putting on our own oxygen mask on first. I, I, I just don't get why this is so hard. I really, I really don't. It's like, here is something that can help. It's not perfect. It's a guide. Um, and I did have one last question for you from an audience member um, that ties into this. L- Linda Seltzer asked a really good question. She asked, how useful is a resolution against anti-Semitism when the definition of it is not included? I, th- I think that's a great question. I think, I think she's right. <clears throat> but remember that Jew haters, the anti- contemporary anti-Semites, benefit from these loose definitions of anti-Semitism, right? Uh, Kanye West somehow thought that what he said was not anti-Semitic, right? Because, you know, he, in his mind, that's, he's not anti-Semitic. There are people who say that racism, when we talk about resolutions against racism, it should, doesn't include anti-Semitism. You heard legislators say this. Why? Because the only anti-Semitism that matters is racism against black Jews. You heard this as a justification for why the Congress would not pass a legislation opposing anti-Semitism and censoring Ilhan Omar several years ago for some of the anti-Semitic comments that she made. And one of the justifications, instead they had a watered-down, pure, race, anti-racism, and if you ask people, certainly the black caucus, congressional caucus, they'll say, well, it sort of covers Jews, it covers black Jews. It doesn't cover white Jews because white-on-white crime doesn't matter. Racism is only about color. And so this is why you're hearing this sort of wordplay about, oh, no, 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 we're including Jews, black Jews, that they're included in any, any resolution condemning racism. But there's no reason to condemn anything that privileges white people who are over, already, already overly privileged. That's what's being said on campus. That's what's being said in the Democratic Party. That's definitely what's been, being said by the squad or the Black Congressional Caucus. That's how they read it. Yeah, I think an argument can be made that you need to fight one binary with another binary sometimes. And, um, you know, IRA to me is the starting point. Um, I did hear one interesting criticism this week. Someone was expressing concern that if we get one definition 
but it doesn't cover everything, then we're in trouble. And the, what she referenced was the black Hebrew Israelites uh, chanting, we are the real Jews. And she was under the belief that uh, Ira would not protect us against that. Is that correct? Well, I mean, <laughs> the black Hebrew Israelites is so preposterous that it's hard to see how it applies in any connection. What they're saying, what they would be saying, essentially, is that that IRA only applies to Israel as long as they are in charge of Israel. <laughs> right? You know, because again, I mean, that that would be essentially how it would be. They wouldn't be able to use it because they'd have to say that Israel has no right to exist. And I don't think they would say that. Right, I think just by the definition of their name, they believe that they're the they're the, the the true descendants of the ancient Hebrews, and so therefore that country belongs to them because they're the original Jews. So I, you know, Jews don't need protection against the Black Hebrew Israelites in that way, you know, except when it comes to, again they're they're less likely to invoke the kinds of language that you hear on campus because, you know, they do believe that Israel should exist. <laughs> they just don't think that white Jews are the ones that should be in control of it. What do you wish everybody would do right now to help fight anti-Semitism? To me, IRA is number one. Not everybody agrees. But, you know, what would you say our, our best remedies are generally? Well, we have a terrible Jewish leadership vacuum. Um, the ADL, the American Jewish Committee, these large entities that were purportedly designed to fight anti-Semitism seem to be fighting other battles. And so it's very, I think it's very hard for most American Jews to point to the American Jewish Committee or ADL and say, they are fighting for me. They are standing up for me. I just don't know of any Jews that are actually thinking that. Um, they've gone in a very different direction, and they do seem to be interested in more progressive causes. Um, Jewish political figures, unlike the Black Congressional Caucus, as I just said before, Jewish political figures are afraid to stand up for Jews. They just won't. You don't hear it with Adam Schiff. You don't hear it with Schumer. You, don't, you just don't hear it. They don't. It's very tepid. Part of that reason is because they're afraid of, you know, AOC. They're afraid of, of what happened to Elliot Engel, the long-standing congressman from New York, right. who was primaried from his left. So all of these elected officials are afraid of being primaried from the left, and so that they have been fairly mute and, and muted when it comes to standing up on behalf of Jews. So there's a terrible leadership vacuum. There's the Jewish Leadership Project, which is a new nonprofit that was established recently, which I think people should look into, JLP, I think, .org, I think, uh, that basically speaks to this idea that there is a vacuum, a, a real uh, absence of Jewish leadership. So one solution is to actually get some Jewish leaders, whether they are elected officials or from the Jewish legacy uh, organizations. I mean, there was a time 
when the ADL was led by A. Foxman, where people believed that A. Foxman was standing up for Jews. And I don't, I don't think there is. I think Elie Wiesel played that role for many years um, as a peace activist, but I think he was seen as a Jewish leader. And I just think that we just don't, we don't seem to be producing Jewish leaders. We're producing Jews with leadership positions, but seem to be exercising their leadership in a way that is not for the benefit of Jews. Um, so that's one area. The other area is for individuals to speak up, you know, to make demands. You know, for, for people that invented the word chutzpah, Jews don't seem to have a lot of chutzpah. You know, they're afraid to stand up for each other. You know, they're afraid to make demands on behalf of other Jews. And they think that, again, tikkun olam means that Judaism is there for helping others, not for themselves. So they'll make any excuses to explain everything away. And again, you know, we saw echoes of that, shadows of that in the 1930s, explaining things away rather than making demands. You know, there's a long history of Jews from the Middle East, you know, the Mizrahi Sephardic Jews, who always fought back, and Jews, Ashkenazi Jews from Europe, that always found ways to cooperate, to conciliate, to appease, right? Anything to sort of let it go away. Let this go away, and it'll, it'll get better. And I'm, I'm afraid that American Jews are falling right into that category. That's what they are. A lot of people are afraid of that. And, uh, I mean, some would even call it a mass psychosis self-abandonment. Um, it's a little extreme. But either way, as, as Andrew Pesson said, you know, you need to put your, your own oxygen mask on first and, and then save the world. So um, I'm paraphrasing. But, um, but I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he's also interviewed this month, too. So, um, so Saint, how can people learn more and support your work? Well, I have a website, saintrosenbaum.com, uh, where all my work is there. Um, I, um, you know, I write twice a month for the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles. I write once a month for the White Rose Magazine. I'm the creative director of the Forum on Life, Culture, and Society. It's called folks.org. It's a nonprofit. It's my nonprofit. If you wanted to support the work of Thane Rosenbaum, a really good way to do it is to go to folks.org, the website, and make a donation, folcs.org, Forum on Life, Culture, and Society. Um, but, you know, and, and among, you know, I, I don't like to talk about myself, but I would like to say that, unfortunately, there are not that many people like me. As I said before, it's not a good career move. Uh, most Jewish writers, most Jewish law professors, um, you know, most Jewish artists, you know, don't take the positions that I take. You know, it, it, it is the, the world that I inhabit is a lonely world. <laughs> you know, uh, there's there's. Yeah. There's that um, very famous photograph of Jackie Robinson when he was being uh, bombarded by uh, racist slurs at a stadium. I think it might have been St. Louis, not in Brooklyn. Uh, and Pee Wee Reese, the shortstop, who was 
came from the south, ran over to first base before the game started and just put his arm around Jackie Robinson. And so the, the whole stadium was watching this, you know, shortstop from this deep south, putting his arm around Jackie Robinson while everyone was using the N-word, screaming at him. And at one point, apparently, Robinson turned to Pee Wee Reese and said, Pee Wee, what are you doing? And he said, no, I'm just standing here, right? Because he understood what the symbolism meant, right? And I can tell you, to use that metaphor, that anecdote, in my experiences, there have been very few Pee Wee Reese's putting their arm around me, very few. They're just, mm-hmm. they're, they're not out They're not out there. They don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. You see it on Facebook. You know, when it's my birthday, a thousand people (laughs) wish me a happy birthday. But if I write an essay, only 12 people will like it. So there's obviously other people (laughs) that like it, but they just don't want their neighbors to see that. They figure, you know what? It's just not worth it. My next door neighbor will hate it. And so, again, if if you can't hit the like button, on Facebook, if you can't do that, then you're probably not well-equipped to stand up for your people. Yeah. Well, and you do it very, very well. And and I know for a fact that many, many people appreciate uh, the work you do. And so uh, maybe they should reach out and just like your stuff. (laughs) Reach out to you on social media. Give them some love, guys. Yes. (laughs) uh... Give them some love. Absolutely. Well, you, my circle is everybody. You're a rock star. So, um, I, I can tell you that and I am not exaggerating whatsoever. So, um, we certainly appreciate you. So well, before you, we Laura. go, thanks. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you so much. I have a lightning round. This is a surprise. Ah. I know. So, um, you ready for that? This will be their fun. I'll, I'll try to do it in as uh, an electric way that I can. <laughs> So um, why are you proud to be a Jew? Well, we've got a, a, a long history, and, and we have been reminded throughout that history that our existence is tenuous and that, you know, we, we should either convert to some other religion or fold ourselves in or hide ourselves as Muranos, and we're still here. To me, the, the endurance of the Jewish people, the resourcefulness of the Jewish people, even despite all the odds against us, even despite everything that I said, you know, my entire talk with you on your podcast was pretty grim. And yet I have no doubt that Jewish people will survive this too. Who are your Jewish role models? Um, you know, I... I I have always uh, admired the Jews that stood up, and sometimes they weren't Jews. Remember, in the during the Dreyfus affair, it was a non-Jewish playwright, Emilia Zola, who stood up for uh, Alfred Dreyfus, the accused uh, uh, captain in the French army. Um, you know, I've always admired. Uh, you know, there was a I forgot the name of the Jews who, in the aftermath of um, the Leo Frank lynching, I guess Louis Brandeis would certainly be one of them, but there were Jews, the, the, uh, all of those uh, groups, American uh, Jewish Congress, the World Jewish Congress, uh, the Anti-Defamation League, uh, B'nai B'rith, 
uh, American Jewish Committee, all of that arose largely out of the lynching of a Jew in Atlanta, Leo Frank, uh, through an act of anti-Semitism. So the people that were prepared to stand up for other Jews during perilous times where there were disadvantages to doing so have always been role models to me. You know, as you know, you know, the the crime of the Holocaust was not the, you know, the obvious crime is the perpetrators, but it was the, the, the tens of millions of other Europeans who were indifferent and complacent and complicit by doing nothing. It's very hard to stand up to do something. Our, your whole podcast today was about that. It's obviously, it's very hard for our species and especially difficult for Jews to stand up and say, I'm with this guy. I don't like what you're doing and I want to make that known. Make, and I want to make it publicly known. I want, I want my name associated with this because I'm, I'm absolutely opposed to it. It's the rare person that does that. So anytime I see people who do that, they, they're, they're heroes of mine. Yeah, and I love that you acknowledge that sometimes non-Jews have been some of the greatest heroes in that respect as well. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, if you go to Yad Vashem and, you know, the righteous halls of the righteous Gentile, those stories are, 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 are really compelling, you know, when, when others stand up for Jews. Because, as you know, historically, that has not been, you know, the sentiment of non-Jews to stand up for Jews. Right. So what concerns you the most about our present situation? Meaning just what, what makes you the most anxious? The, 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 uh, the hijacking of universities, media, museums, corporate, large corporations, to woke mobs, to anti-Israel mobs, to the BDS movement. I just, I have existed in universities for most of my professional life. And I always, I would lecture in Israel, and I, I you know, I, I, I gave Israelis bad advice. <laughs> I'm often wrong. You know, I said, look, this stuff is confined to the universities. It won't leave the universities. And once people, you know, graduate from school and the, the, the indoctrination that took place in universities will wear off. And as they have children, they'll get older and they'll see things. You know, what we've seen in, during the pandemic and the aftermath of the George Floyd murder, uh, mm-hmm. you know, through social media, We've seen what I consider a, 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 a real contagion, a disease, a pathology that has taken over mainstream media and universities and has entered into the public sphere. And I didn't expect that. I thought it would be yeah. confined to the intellectual magazines, the stuff that nobody was reading. You know, just a bunch of academics talking to each other, hating Jews. I did not yeah. imagine that this type of anti-Semitism, the ones that we discussed today with what I will call IRA anti-Semitism, right? The anti-Semitism that IRA mm-hmm. is designed to counteract. I did not expect that to enter the public sphere. I did not expect that to enter the Democratic Party, for God's sakes. I didn't, mm-hmm. just didn't expect that, that it would be in, you know, major mainstream media. Um, that I just didn't expect. I never thought the BDS movement was something that would ever catch on. And, and, yeah, I don't ahead, think sorry. people thought the, the Corbinization 
that, that we see the Corbynization of a political party here, like we saw in the UK. And, um, you know, the, the I'm sure you're familiar with the 10 stages of genocide where they talk about the different things, you know, when you lose the media, when you lose a, yeah. a political party, when you lose, you know, it, it, there comes a point, you know, back to my open, that you may just have the courts, you know, you can't necessarily count on, oh, they'll grow out of it, you know, if you don't have... Uh, if you're not liberal when you're young, you don't have a heart. If you're not more conservative later, you don't have a you know, A lot of people assume that, and that, that may not be the case. Uh, so if you can't right. trust the culture, uh, hopefully we can trust the court. So that's my philosophy, at least. No, and I think you're right. Um, you've, you've, been put, you've been saying that throughout the, uh, throughout the podcast, and I think you were right each time. Yeah, yeah. So I'm doing a real bad job at the lightning round, but this is fun. <laughs> um, so uh, what makes you mad? Uh, you know, indifference, complacency, indifference, casualness, uh, cultural elitism. You know, you know, I, I, I'm a registered Democrat, but I find appalling, you know, the way we demonize Republicans, calling them deplorables, the, you know, the cultural elite on both coasts, the coastal elites, these things, I think, has made America less American, uh, taken liberal democracies and turned it into illiberal democracies. Um, these, these things that we're starting to see, again, gaining a much more wider public acceptance the cancellation of people, the censorship of people, the self-censorship of people, all of this is very frightening. It's not the country that I grew up in. It's not my understanding of 19th century classic liberalism. Um, you know, what we have, the Democratic Party is now a progressive party. It's not a liberal party. It's illiberal at its core. And there's many examples of that. So. So, you know, and, and indifference is part of it because people are standing by and watching this happen and just saying, you know, well, you know, it'll go away. There's a casual acceptance of things that to me are fundamentally un-American and illiberal. I, I've always said that I think the best activists are disillusioned liberal Zionists in many ways, you know, the accidental activists in so many ways because what we need are two healthy parties not one party to obliterate the other and i think we have neither right now right where there's no longer there's no longer a bipartisan support of israel and that is a huge change yeah for those who look up to you what do you want them to remember not to look up to me (laughs) (laughs) uh i that's very sweet to think about, but I, I they, I'm sure they're better candidates than me. Um, you know, I just think moral courage and moral clarity is something that I, you know, is 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 natural to me, even if I don't necessarily practice it. You know, in all, you know, I, I'm sure I, I I contradict myself. I'm sure I'm inconsistent. I'm sure that I'm hypocritical in some instances. But the basic idea of you know, trying to live a life pursuant to moral clarity and exercising moral courage, which, as we've talked about throughout this entire, is just seemingly very hard to do. 
And if, 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 if anyone is seeing those qualities in me and thinks that they're very valuable qualities and that they would like to pursue them, that would make me very happy because you just, there's, just, uh, there's a severe shortage of that in our world and it's getting worse. You know, instead of moral clarity, we have moral relativism, which is, you know, something that also arises out of the academy, out of universities, which says there's no fundamental distinctions between right and wrong. Who are you to say what's right and who, what's right for you is wrong for me, whatever. You know, this kind of casualness that who's to say, who's to know. But no, there are, there are, there should be fundamental distinctions between right and wrong. There's some things that are better than other things. Democracies are better than authoritarian countries or theologically governed countries. They're just better. And to exercise, you know, to say it's all morally relative, you know, to, to draw a moral equivalence, for instance, the moral equivalence between Israeli soldiers killing 10 terrorists in Janine and then eight worshipers two days later or three days later being killed in Jerusalem. The moral relativist says they're the same. They're morally equivalent. Who's to say that these terrorists are not valuable as, as much as the eight or nine worshipers that were killed in a synagogue? And anyone with any moral decency and moral clarity knows there's a difference. You know, I, I, I wrote a, a book called The Case for Revenge many years ago, and I talked about, you know, people who say, you know, all lives are of equal value. No, they're not. No, they're not. I'm prepared to say right now that Martin Luther King's life was more valuable than Adolf Hitler. I'm sorry. I'm very comfortable saying that. They're not all the same. And it requires, again, moral certainties, moral judgments, moral clarity. And that is something that we are living in a relativistic, as you said, a universality-centered consciousness where we're like afraid to exercise moral judgment. Who's to say what's good for the, you know, you know, everyone sees it. Well, it's almost a moral narcissism sometimes too. Yeah. 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 Well, well, finally, what's your outlook on the future of the Jewish people? Are you hopeful? I'm hopeful that there, we will survive. Uh, in the way that we survived, you know, from our origin, you know, um, you know, people talk about, you know, we didn't talk about Israel in this way. I've, I've written a lot and spoken about the quote occupation, and I think that the, the capitulation to use of that word was a tragic mistake that Israel made and American Jews made. It was never the right word. It's a dispute. There's a land. There's a land dispute. Not an occupation. It stopped being occupied when Israel became a country in 1948. Israel, the, the land that is presently Israel, includes Gaza and the West Bank, was, has been occupied since the fall of the Kingdom of Judea, right? That country of Jews, that's the last time it was a country. It had been occupied for over 2,000 years every year. It only stopped being occupied when Israel became a country because they reclaimed the kingdom of Judea. So it's just ironic to say, you know, Jews are occupying. No, they're not occupying. They ended the occupation 
up until from the end of Judea till the creation of Israel, that the land had been occupied by at least 15, I counted last, 15 people, nations, ended up occupying, the last of which being Jordan uh, of, the, of the West Bank. Um, so, you know, the, the, the existence of our people throughout inquisitions and Holocaust, you know, we're, we're, in the end, we're, you know, for people denying our existence, we're very hard to kill. You know, we still, no matter how many, we're still here. You know, it, it, it's an extraordinary, despite all the mass murder and forced conversions, we're still here. So I think that that's what I'm hopeful about. I just don't know what we'll look like. And that's, to me, that uncertainty. We'll be here. I just don't know what we'll look like. And this is one of the reasons why, although I'm very much a secular Jew, I, I've been very protective of modern Orthodox and Hasidic Jews in my writing and in my advocacy. Because they're doing the heavy lifting of keeping, you know, the, yes, it, with a lot of discrimination and a, a lot of problems within their, in the community. But, you know, they're, they're holding fast to the book and someone's got to do it. And I admire that they are. So, again, that's why I'm saying we'll be here. I just don't know what we'll look like. And maybe their birth rates will ensure that the Torah will still matter to Jews, that the commandments will still matter to Jews, that kosher, that, our, that Jewish history will still be mattering to Jews. I mean, that's what I'm saying. We may exist, but will we know, what, will we know where we came from? That I don't know. Ayn Rosenbaum. Thank you for being with us today. You've given us a lot to think about, and we really look forward to seeing you again soon. There's a lot more to talk about, for sure. Well, I'm applauding this podcast, Laura, and your entire project, making sure that everyone knows that this is that this, this enterprise that you're part of is growing and that they should be supporting it. Thank you so much, and we definitely will be having you back on much more, I Anytime hope. Anytime for you. Anytime for you, Laura. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of Talking Point on the Jewish TV channel. Tune in next time when we'll have Dr. Andrew Pesson on to discuss how to not only bounce back after cancellation, but also stage a comeback that helps others in the Jewish community. Until then, bye for now. Thank you for listening to Talking Point on Jewish TV channel, the voice of Jewish communities worldwide. We look forward to seeing you again.